And we're in a series called Christians with Addictions. And this comes from Psalm 51, which I hope that you've read sometime in the past few weeks. If not, read it this week. Um, every sermon in the series starts with the letter R. Part one was recognize that you need help, you need Jesus. Part two was take responsibility, don't blame anybody else. Part three was roots, and we talked about how some addictions start because of uh, rooted issues, deep-rooted issues from our past, and how we need to pray those things out. Today in part four, I want to talk to you about repent. Repent. Now, preachers in the 70s and 80s and even some of the 90s, they made this word a, a bad word. They gave it a very negative connotation. They would stand up in front of groups of people and say, you sinners need to repent. You need to repent. And they even said that it means something that it doesn't mean. Preachers used to teach that the word repent means to change your life or to change from sin or to stop sinning or to go do the right thing or to turn away from sin. That is not what the word repent means. Um, if, if repentance meant that, um, hey, you're doing wrong and you need to do right, if that's what it meant, then we wouldn't need Jesus. Because we can't change our hearts. We can't do right without Jesus. Um, I'm sure that all of you in here have the testimony of, once you learned something was a sin, you never did it again. Is that your testimony? Once you learned that thou shalt not lie, from that point on, none of you have ever lied. Right? Okay. That's not how it works. You can't change yourself. Only Jesus can change you. So I'm going to teach you what repent means in these three easy points that also start with the letter R. Because I love pirates. Okay, point number one is this. Repent. Repent. I took it from the title, of course. It comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your, for your handout, your mind. You can change your mind. You can't change your heart. You can change what you're thinking about and how you think, but you can't change your heart or your desires or your will. Uh, the other Greek word, the verb, metanoia or metanoio, is change the way you think. Uh, the Greek language is so amazing. It is so precise. You know, Latin came from Greek and English came from Latin. Uh, in the Greek language, there are many, many words for the word love. There's four major words, but many, many after that for the word love. In English, we're just so simple. We just say, I love hot dogs, I love fried chicken, and I love my children. But obviously, we would not give our life for fried chicken, but we would give our life for hot dogs. So you see how the word love it goes in there. So it comes from two Greek words, um, metanoia. Meta means change, where you get metamorphosis. And noia means mind. Here's what this is teaching us is this. Jesus is saying this. If you'll change the way you think about money and think about it the way my word says. If you'll change the way you think about your enemies and look at what my word says. If you'll change the way you think about me and see what the word says, then I'll come in and I'll change your heart. I'll give you the desire to do the things that your mind is telling you is the right things. Are you with me? The first sermon Jesus ever preached, the first thing he ever preached in Matthew 4, 17 is this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, let me give you a little uh, example. Uh, someone who's a, uh, who goes to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's say they go there every night or they go there three times a week or whatever it is. The reason they're going there is because they have the mindset of, I don't want to live this way. I need change. The way I'm doing it isn't right. I've got to, I've got to feed myself something different. I've got to, I want help. I don't want it to be like this. That is repentance. A non-repentant heart is someone that says, this is just who I am. I'm going to live this way regardless of what anyone else tells me. I don't like God's way. I think my way is best. I don't even want to hear his way. This, I was born this way. I'm going to live this way. There's nothing wrong with it. That's a non-repentive heart. 
Um, Romans 2, 4 says, Are you ignorant of the fact that God is good to us so that it will change the way we think? We'll repent. But you refuse to change the way you think. You refuse to repent. And here's what's happening to you. Your heart is stubborn and hard. And everything in life flows out of our heart. But it starts with us changing our mind. Uh, a few months ago, I was at dinner with a bunch of friends. And a, a good friend of mine, she was sitting in front of me. And we began to discuss something that she um, experienced in another culture, in another country. And she said, we should do this in America. There's nothing wrong with this. And I said, no, there's something very wrong with that. And so we started debating during dinner, and I gave her all the psychological reasons why what that it, it would be wrong for us. I gave all the economic reasons why it would hurt families and hurt cities. And I just kept, we were fighting and started getting heated and heated. I said, it's wrong because of this. She said, was well, right because, I said, it's wrong, and on and on. And finally she got up to go use the bathroom, and we kind of cooled down. And I thought about it, and when she came back, I said, I know why it's wrong. Because the Bible says it's wrong. Now, you would have thought the preacher would have started with that sentence. That would have been the very beginning of the debate. But after 30 minutes, I was like, I know I can tell. The Bible, and, she, and she's a Christian. She said, okay, yeah, you're right. The Bible does say. Okay, here's repentance. I may not like it. I may not agree with it. I may not even want to do it. But I know God's word is true. So, God, I need you to change my heart so I'll have the desire to do the thing you're asking me to do. So I'll have the desire to turn away from sin. Turning away from sin and your life changing is the result of repentance. But that's not what repentance means. Acts 3.19 says this, Repent therefore and you'll be converted. Your sins will be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You'll never be refreshed as long as you always think your way is best. There are some people that are so prideful they never want to hear another perspective. They stick into their guts. This is, this is what I believe. They never want to hear another side of it. So I, I, pulled, out this, um, I pulled this out of the kitchen uh, earlier this morning. And, um, and on the, some of y'all got excited for a minute like I was going to give you some. I'm not giving you any, okay? On the count of three, I want everybody to tell me what this says. One, two, three. Okay, I don't see that. In fact, I don't, well, I, it, okay, okay. You must be from the north talking about soda. I don't see that it says Pepsi. I don't believe you. I don't like that you're saying that because that's not what I see. How in the world could you think that it says Pepsi? It does not say that. To me it says, to me it says, <laughs> to me it says a bunch of little words they should have made bigger is what it says. And to me it says ingredients. Carbon, to me it says other things. I don't see that it says Pepsi. Now here's the thing. If I'm going to see it the way you see it, I have to come around from your side and I have to look at it through your eyes and your point of view in order to see what you see. Repentance is simply this. We just come around and we get in the Word of God and we see what God says about us. We see what God says about our enemies. We see what God says about forgiveness. We see what God says about peace. That's all repentance is. I don't see it your way. Okay, well then come around to God's side and see it through his eyes. And God, oh, you know what? Your way is much better. Now, I don't feel it. I, don't, I need you to change all that on the inside. That's, that's a, that, that was a really good analogy, by the way. Um, it was really good. Okay, so let me ask you a question. I'm going to set you up, okay? This is one of those pastor things where I'm going to set you up to look stupid. So don't raise your hand, okay? Don't raise your hand, okay? How many of you in this room don't raise your hands, okay? Don't raise your hands. Don't even look at the person next to you when I say Because sometimes I say things and I see the wife look at the husband and say, like that. So don't even do that, okay? 
don't even do that. Don't, 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 don't even squeeze the person. Don't tap them on their leg. Don't do this stuff, okay? How many of you hate, don't please don't raise your How many of you hate to be corrected? You hate it. Proverbs 12, 1 says this, he who hates correction is stupid. The reason we get in the Word of God isn't because he doesn't love us, he's mad at us, he thinks that there's some. No, it's simply so he can correct the things that we're thinking so then we can ask him to change the things that we're feeling on the inside. It's like having a GPS. Let's say you're trying to get to a destination. Have you ever thrown the GPS out the window when it says, recalculating? You think, I don't want to go your way. I'm going to get there my way. And the GPS, if it could talk, it would say, you're going the wrong direction. You're going to keep going the wrong direction, and you're never going to get to your destination until you do it. See, some of us have more faith in the GPS on our phone than we do the Word of God. We, we put in a destination on our phone. We have more faith that that's going to get us where we need to get to, and we waste time with everything else and all these other thoughts rather than opening up the Word of God and seeing how He says we should get to our destination. Do you know the number one complaint against Jesus? It was not blasphemy. That's what they charged him for. The number one complaint against Jesus is something that makes me feel so warm and fuzzy. In Luke 15, 1, then all the IRS agents and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and he dines with them. Remember the word dines for the end of the sermon. I need you to remember that word. Okay, dines. Okay, watch this. Mark 2, 15, Jesus was dining at Levi's house, along with many IRS agents and sinners, many tax collectors. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. And when the religious people, the Pharisees, saw him dining with sinners, they said, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Can we just thank Jesus that he, he, he received sinners? Are we all thankful for that? That means you get to spend time with Jesus later. That's what that means, okay? He heard the saying, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I did not come to call those who think they're better than everybody else. I did not come to call those who think they don't need change in their life. I did not come to call those who think they're righteous. I came for the sinners, and here's what I came to do, to tell them they need to repent. Now, either Jesus hung out with these people who followed him and loved him, and Jesus kept saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You need to live this way, you need to change this, you need to fix this. Or he said, the way you think about my heavenly Father needs to change. He actually loves you. And he, he's made a way for you to get to him, not about your works and all the good things you do, but through a relationship through me. One or the other. Which one do you think it was? Either he told them they're wrong and they need to change, or he told them the way that you think about things is not right. Listen how you should think. We love you. The Father and I love you. We're going to move heaven and earth to get you with us. One or the other. Would you agree it was, it was, the, it was the love one, right? Okay, uh, point number two for your notes, return. Point number two and three are based on um, a letter to seven churches in the book of Revelation, Okay. Uh, Revelation, sometimes it, it, it intimidates people, but John 1-4 tells us it's just John writing to seven churches in Asia. Now, most of the New Testament is, is letters to churches, right? Ephesus, Ephesians, Corinth, Corinthians, Thessalonica, it's Thessalonians, and it's Paul writing to those churches. So don't get intimidated when you get to the book of Revelation. It simply starts off with a letter that John is writing and Jesus is speaking. That's why it's red letter in your Bible if you have red letter edition. John is describing what Jesus is saying to seven churches. These churches are in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And I'll show you actually a picture of it up here on the screen. You can see the map. Um, he's writing it from the island of Patmos. It's where John's at writing it. And in the, in the book of Revelation, actually, it, it came in the inscripturation process, of course, because it's in your Bible. But it started at Ephesus, and it went to the left, and it went up north, and then to the right, all the way down. 
Um, he would send them the book of Revelation. They would copy it, and then they'd send it to the next church. And there's even the Church of Philadelphia, which they started an extension campus uh, in Pennsylvania several years later. And so, um, okay, we're filming this service, so we're going to try it again, okay? The Church of Philadelphia opened up an extension campus in Pennsylvania years later. <laughs> I wish I were in the first service. Okay, so in 95 AD, 95 AD is when it was written. It was written 65 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the ascension of him into heaven, and Jesus himself appears to John on the island of Patmos. This is so beautiful to me because John is the one who Jesus said on the cross, take care of my mother. John is the one that, you know, the, the, the gospel of John, first, second, third John, he's the love disciple, the love gospel. Um... Uh, he, he's exiled on the island of Patmos because he would not die. The main 12 disciples, the first 12 disciples were all martyred, except for Judas who committed suicide. And then John, they tried to martyr him. They threw him off a cliff, but he kept on preaching. He wouldn't die. So they boiled him in oil. He kept on preaching. Unharmed, wouldn't die. So they exile him to Patmos, and Jesus shows up. And... Um, I'll read you what he wrote, and this first letter is written to the church of Ephesus, which is the church where John attended when he was there, and Timothy is the pastor. Okay, so here's where I get the, the word return from. Revelation 2, 2 through 7, I know all things you do. This is Jesus speaking to churches. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people like me and you. I have seen your hard work. I know you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Nevertheless, I have something against you, and here's what it is. You left your first love. Point number two is return. Return to your first love. You don't love me as you did at first. So change the way you think. Repent and then do the works you did at first. The things you did when you first got saved, when you first fell in love with Jesus. Or else I'll remove your lampstand, which is saying I'm not going to let you be one of the churches that shine light for me unless you repent. The church of Ephesus was emphasizing truth without love. They were preaching, do this, do this, do this, do this, without doing it in a loving manner. And we as believers, we can share in God's anger against wickedness as long as we share in his compassion toward people. We can share in his holy, righteous anger against evil things in the world and things that are wrong as long as we share in his holy, righteous mercy and love for the people that are doing the things wrong. Okay, a lot of Christians want to just point out doing wrong but they're not doing it in love. They're not reaching the person. They're just trying to deal with the sin. That's God's part. Our job is to reach the person. Are you good so far? Okay, so um, the average death rate uh, at that time was 50 years old. So the oldest people there were in their 50s. John lived to be over 100 years old. And history tells us, the historians of the day, that he was visiting his home church of Ephesus when he was over 100 years old. And when he walked in on that service, it was a regular service time, everyone in the congregation, just, they just gasped. Just, it took a bit, because this is, this is the last living disciple of Jesus Christ. So they said, John, come up and preach the sermon for us today. And he, remember, he's over 100 years old, and, and they tell us that he could only say three words in the last few years of his life. Only three words is all he spoke over and over. So he stood up on the pulpit, and he looked at the congregation. Remember, he's over 100. Everyone else, the oldest person there is 50. And he's 100 years old, and he looks at everybody and he says this, love one another. He goes and sits down. They say, John, we want to hear more. You walked with Jesus. You took care of his mother whenever he was on the cross. You were the closest disciple to him. Tell us something profound. Teach us what you learned. He comes back up, and he simply says, love one 
another. You know, without Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. Without John, we would not have John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him should not perish. Without John, we wouldn't have the man by the pool of Bethesda in John 5. Without John, we wouldn't have the washing of the feet. Without John, we wouldn't have this new commandment that I give you, love one another. That's all John. That's all John. And he's writing to this first church of Ephesus, and he's saying this, return to your first love. You used to love me so much when you first got saved, and something's happened. Have you ever felt like, man, when I first got saved, I was more in love with Jesus than I am now? I was more passionate about I am. Did you ever used to feel like that? Remember when you first got saved and then things happen, you have kids and you go without sleep and you have to pay bills and, and, da, da, and you aren't as excited about him as you used to be. Remember that? Everyone's felt that way unless you just got saved this morning. We've all felt that way. So he says, how do I return? How do I, remember we're talking about repenting, change the way you think. How do I return? He says this, you simply do the things you did at first when you first got saved. So there's three things you and I all did when we first got saved, and they all just happen to start with the same letter, because Jesus loves me like that. The first one is this for your notes, worship. When we first got saved, man, so let me tell you, I, I, I had the privilege of working at about 15 churches all along the Grand Strand in the late 90s. I did it for, um, for 18, 20 years, from age 13 to age uh, 38. I still work at the Methodist Church sometimes, and they would hire me to build their music department, to train choirs and to train musicians, and then turn it over to somebody. I worked for Episcopal Church here, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Bapticostal, Charismatic, all of them, you know, I was in there all And um, every time I'd, I'd, I'd play in the music, I would teach the songs, and every time the pastor of the church would come to me and say, hey, I want you to do this song sometime today. I'd say, pastor, that's one of those old songs. That's not the new stuff. That's the old stuff. He'd say, please do it. So I'd always, of course, submit the authority, do the song. And I always wondered why these pastors would give me these old songs, and it occurred to me a few years ago why. My playlist is not any of the songs we sing in our church. My playlist is the songs that came out when I first got saved. It's Hillsong. Remember Hillsong when it first came out? And Brownsville Revival and Hosanna Integrity and Alvin Slaughter and Ron Cannoli. I mean, those, that's my playlist. If this were my church and not ours, if this were my church, we wouldn't do none of these new songs. We'd be doing songs from early 2000 and late 90s. Because that's what, and I realized these pastors, they were doing that because they felt so close to God when they heard the worship music that, at the time when they first gave their life to Jesus. So I encourage you, pull out those old CDs or for some of you all those eight tracks, whatever you got, get that music back. Get that, okay, the second thing is this word. When we first got saved, we could not wait to learn more about the Bible. We were in every Sunday school class, every short group, everything we could, we wanted word, word, word. When I first got saved, I didn't know hardly anything. So I would type out scriptures and I would tape them all over my life, all over the inside of my car, my mirror, uh, my, my dresser, next to my bed. I probably had a hundred scriptures just to get them inside of me. I had one big scripture across the speedometer of my car so I wouldn't have to see the speedometer. It said, uh, we're not under the law, we're under grace. I love that one. And so, and we just couldn't wait. to get, And listen, and some of you think, man, I've read this same scripture a hundred times. Read it another hundred times. How many times have you eaten the same food? You don't complain. That same restaurant you go to, you order the same thing. It's okay to eat the same thing. It's okay to read the same passage of Scripture over and over. The third thing is this witness. When you first got saved, you were telling everybody about, come to church. Oh, let me tell you how great it is. Oh, Jesus has done so many good things. I love talking to strangers. I don't know why. I love when I'm out. I find myself saying, don't talk to anybody. Just enjoy your meal. And I end up always talking to people. 
And I feel like I'm doing it because within the second or third time I see him, somehow I work Jesus in the conversation. And it's not, you're, you're going to hell because there's something, it's none of that. It's always something like, man, I, I, I'd have a horrible week if it weren't for Jesus this week. Or, oh my goodness, let me tell you, if it weren't for God, I don't know where I'd be. I want to somehow work it in the conversation on, I need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. I'm not better than you because I'm saved. I've just found the way to, to get to heaven and I want you to find it. Let me give you an illustration and we'll, we'll move on. This is really for all the guys. Um, remember guys when you were in your, your 20s or 30s, um, you used to have poker night. You'd get together once a week or you'd have um, bowling night or you'd watch the football games with your buddies. Imagine, you know, it's, it's regular poker night and, and you're all sitting there and, and, and Jim hasn't showed up. And you say, where's, where's Jim at? And everybody says, I don't know where Jim's at. He's supposed to be here. He told me to be here and he doesn't show up. Next week, poker night, and, and Jim's not there. Where has anybody heard from Jim? I don't know. And then the third week rolls around. Where is Jim at? And one of the buddies says, I heard he met a girl. Well, that don't have to stop him from playing poker. What's wrong with him? We're only here for a few hours. It's just a girl. Next week, you're at the mall, and you're looking outside of Dillard's, and there's Jim holding a purse. Jim, what you doing holding that purse? And he says, oh, let me tell you about the girl I met. Oh, she's so pretty. She's so funny. I can't wait for you to meet her. She's in there shopping. I'm just standing here holding the purse for her. She'll be out in a little bit. There's two things Jim wants to do. He wants to spend time serving that woman, and he wants to tell everybody how great she is. You know why? He's in love. And you know what it's like? Return. Just get your mind back. Back, back, back. Word, worship, witness. Point number three is this. Restart. Restart. So out of the seven churches that he wrote to Revelation, in, in the book of Revelation, the seventh church is the church of Laodicea. And if you want to write in your handout, you can write the word lukewarm. This is the lukewarm church that people talk about, okay? Revelation 3, 15 through 19, Jesus starts off saying the same thing. I know everything you do at your church. Now, as a side note, the seven churches, in, in six of them, Jesus affirms them, and then he corrects them. Laodicea, there's no affirmation. He just corrects them. He's just telling them what they're doing wrong, which is kind of funny, so you might not have wanted to be part of the church of Laodicea if you were back in those days. I know everything you do. You're not hot or cold. Y'all know the scripture, right? I wish that you were either one or the other, but since you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit, or the, the Greek actually says vomit. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And here's why. You say this, because of my money, I don't need anything. Because I finally was able to retire, I'm all good. Because I got the big house, the fancy car. Now that I've made it in the world, I don't need all the things I used to need. I have everything I need. And Jesus says this, but you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And we'll talk about that in a second. I'd advise you to buy gold from me that's purified by fire, which is the wisdom of God, so you can be rich. You need some white garments, which is focusing on the fact that you can't get to heaven without Jesus, to cover your nakedness. And you need ointment for your eyes, which is saying you're prideful. You think you're better than everybody because of your money. So you can see, I I'm, not I'm not telling you to take a different turn because I'm mad at you. I correct you because I love you. I'm telling you this road you're on, you need to change the road because I love you. So you need to repent. Now, this church says they're rich. This is the, each one of the seven cities had each had one church in it. And Laodicea said this, because we got money, we don't need anything. That was the biggest lie in the world. There was something they needed that all the churches had except for them, and that was water. 
They had no wells. They had no springs, no mountainous runoffs. So they tried to build an aqueduct system from two nearby cities uh, to bring water to Laodicea. I'll show you on the map here, actually. You see the um, Hierapolis is a close-by city in Colossae. And uh, both of them had water, and so they tried to build an aqueduct system to get water to Laodicea. did work, so they tried on um, these clay pipes. To this day, you can actually go visit there and see these clay pipes. That there's, there's remains left from even 2,000 years ago uh, to see it. Now, um, Hierapolis was famous for something. They were famous for hot, hot, hot water. People used to bathe there, and they'd swim in there. And then Colossae was famous for incredibly cold, fresh drinking water. Very cold, iced water, but it was cool, it was refreshing. When they built the clay pipes from Hierapolis to Laodicea, the hot, hot water that was at Hierapolis, by the time it got to Laodicea, what temperature do you think it was? When the cold water went from Colossae, the cold, cold, cold water, when it finally got to Laodicea, what temperature do you think it was? Also, when the water would finally reach Laodicea, the lukewarm water, it had developed so much sediment and lime that when somebody took a sip of it, it made them want to, it made them want to vomit. Um, I remember uh, when I was young, my dad would travel with us, and we went to California one time for vacation, and he wanted to drive down to Mexico for a day. And so from where we were at in California to Mexico, uh, we only had to stop one time to use the bathroom and get gas, you know. And we spent the day in Mexico, and my dad drank water all day in Mexico. On the way back to California, we stopped 12 times to get back on the night, okay, because it wasn't good. Okay, Jesus is using an analogy that this church understands, but most Christians don't understand. I actually polled about 12 people in our congregation this past week. Nobody got it right. Everybody thinks that the, this whole cold and hot thing, you can take me back to the scripture if you want. Uh, they think that, 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 that cold is unsaved and hot is saved and on fire for Jesus. Like, like um, you're playing hide and seek. You're, you're getting closer. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. You're on fire. You're boiling, you know. And they think that lukewarm meant that you're saved, but you're not really on fire. Okay, that's not what it means. Why would Jesus, our Savior, say, uh, he puts cold and hot on the same level? Why would he say, I wish you were cold or hot? Why would he say, I wish you were on fire or I wish you were separated from me for all of eternity? Because that's what unsaved is. Why would he say, I'd rather you be in hell forever than to be a Christian, but just not a very good one, lukewarm? He wouldn't say that at all. Jesus was trying to teach them that you're so focused on worldly things and what you've collected on the outside that when you come across an unsaved person, you are such a bad witness, it makes them want to vomit. Because you're not sharing me, you're sharing about all this money you got. You're not sharing me, you're sharing about all these things you got. Do you see what he's saying? Um, it's like um, when you drink chocolate milk, you either want it to be ice cold or hot chocolate, not lukewarm. When you drink uh, coffee, you want it iced coffee or hot coffee, not lukewarm. And he's saying this, um, every time when there's an unbeliever around and it's a hot day, I need you to be so cold and refreshing, they want what you have. When it's so cold, I want you to bring some hot water to, to be so refreshing so they want what you have. And they were so focused on the outside and the worldly stuff, their mind was so much unworldly things, it was off of all the spiritual things that Jesus said, you make people want to vomit. And you're representing me, and you make him want to vomit. Now, let me go on. He said this to him. He said, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So let me prove this point even further. You can put those up on the screen. There are three, um, there are three things that Laodicea was very, very famous for. 
Okay? The first thing is they were famous for having the largest bank of all seven cities. Uh, and their money came from gold mines that were in their city. Right? They were so rich, but Jesus said, you're poor. Um, they had the number one medical center of all cities specializing in ophthalmology. But Jesus said, you're blind. They had the largest clothing manufacturing business of all seven cities, very fertile fields, and they were the only one that had something very, very rare, which was black wool. Now, if you have white wool, you only get one color. But if you have white wool and black wool, you can make the most beautiful colors all in between. And yes, that was a, a racial analogy, spiritually speaking. White and black, you get all the beautiful colors. But if it's just white, it's just one color all the time. And they would brag on their clothes. But Jesus said this, you're naked. Do you think Jesus knows everything about everything? I mean, even his word says, uh, Psalms 34, 8, taste and see the Lord is good. How are people going to taste and see he's good if not through us, right? So they thought all this outside stuff was great. They, Jesus said, you're poor. Psalms 119.72, truth from your mouth is more valuable than gold. They weren't in the word. They were about the outside. Jesus said, you're blind. The blindest people on earth were the Pharisees, and it was full of pride. Luke 18.11, the Pharisees said, I thank God I'm not like everybody else. I'm not as bad as they are, Jesus, because I'm rich. I got it made. They're really bad off, but I'm really well off. He said, you're blind. You know, the Pharisees were so blind that God was standing six feet in front of them, and they couldn't even see. That's how blind they were. Uh, Jesus said this, you're naked. Isaiah 61.10, he clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness. Here's my question. How many of you were more in love with Jesus when you were poor? Man, when you were poor and you were just starting out and you could barely make it and you had to get the kids fed and you're, you were so getting into the things of God, Lord, we love you, we need you, and now you're at this place in life where you don't really need God anymore. And he's saying this, you need to restart your relationship with me. You just need to restart it. You need to restart it in your mind. He closes out this letter to these seven churches. He closes out with Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in and I will dine. Everybody say dine with that person. Remember, I told you, remember this. Okay, let me close with this. So, Dine is where we get the word dinner, if you're from the north. And some translations say sup, which is where we get the word supper, if you're from where Jesus is from, which is the south. And so, um, so here's what's interesting to me. When he said dine, every Jewish person immediately stopped and knew exactly what he meant. A regular Jewish uh, breakfast was simply a piece of bread dipped in wine. A Jewish lunch was like a snack. It was just a piece of dried fish, like chips. But when he said dine, when he said, if you'll let me be a part of your life and I'll dine with you, the word dine in Greek means a long and leisurely feast normally lasting three hours of fellowship. A lot of evangelists use this scripture to talk to unsaved people. If you'll let Jesus, and, and you can use it for that. Theologically speaking, you can apply it that way. But the first application of this scripture is not to unsaved people. It's to Christians who are already in a church. And Jesus is saying, if you'll open your mind to me, if you'll get in my word, I will feed you, I will sit with you for hours, I'll fellowship with you, and I'll talk to you the entire time you're in my word. Because the greatest thing about the Bible is not what we read and what we learn. The greatest thing about the Bible is who's talking to us and who's with us while we're reading and while we're learning. Is Jesus dining with you. He's fellowshipping with you. He's speaking to you. He's changing your heart while you're changing your mind. 
These seven letters, there's so much plurality in all of them. The church is, the people, church is so big, big, big. And he closes out with such singularity. He says, I stand at the door. If there's any one out of all these churches and all these people, if I can just find it, if I can just find one, for that one it is worth me coming down from heaven and spending time with even just one of you. If there's just one of you that's willing to open up the word and spend time with me. He says, I stand at the door and knock. I think this is so interesting because all through the Bible we read about how God can open up any door. Right? He's the God who opens doors. He has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. The key to David. Wow, God, so he can do anything. And the God who opens any door says this. I'm just going to stand there and knock all day long. Because I cannot open this door from the outside. It only opens from the inside. Just open it up. Change your mind. Repent. Restart. And then return to your first love. And He'll do everything else for you in your life. Amen? Amen. Amen.